version of military victories is a necessary art that the West has yet to master. So the West has become very good at winning militarily, but not converting that military victory into something bigger, into a more stable environment. And this is something that if the West wants to continue to have such global role and intervene, then it's something that it should work on, kind of the exit strategy rather than the entry strategy, uh, in a sense. Season 3 of The Conversation starts with some reflections on a recent topic, the United States, Afghanistan, the Taliban, and U.S. intervention in the Middle East. How much of it was a success and how much of it was a failure? What insights are there to draw from this and what else is missing from the bigger picture? Dr. Costantinos Adamidis, the director of the Diplomatic Academy, shares his own critical insight on this issue. Hello, and uh, welcome to another episode of the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos, and this is the first episode of season three. We're very glad to be here for yet another more season. For this episode, we are hosting Dr. Costandinos Adamidis, Associate Professor in International Relations at the Department of Politics and Governance of the University of Nicosia, where he also serves as the Diplomatic Academy Director. Dr. Adamidis has also served as a member of the Geostrategic Council set by the President of the Republic of Cyprus between 2014 to 2018. Hello, Dr. Adamidis. It's a great pleasure to have you here. And of course, uh, it's a great opportunity to have you as a director to engage with this podcast for uh, third season in, which is uh, quite a bit delayed, but I'm glad to have you here for this uh, episode. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for hosting me. And thank you for hosting uh, the podcast series, which uh, admittedly has been a great success. So job well done. Looking forward to another interesting conversation. I'm very glad to hear that. And it's uh, definitely uh, a relief to hear this coming from you. But for for today's episode, we are going to be discussing something that has already been excessively out there and has already been analyzed. But Given that some sufficient time has already passed, it's a great opportunity to come back and with our hindsight, with our information that we have now to go further into it. And that's the topic of Afghanistan and the United States uh, in its uh, state building efforts. Having left, the question there that persists is whether the United States has failed. So what do you think? Has the United States failed in that regard? Well, that's... I don't think we should look at it as a as a single case. So, uh, militarily, in its initial efforts back in 2001, we cannot say that it has failed. Within two months, it managed to bring down the, the Taliban regime. So, militarily speaking, it was uh, a success, a very swift response to the terrorist attacks, uh, and and very efficient, militarily speaking, very efficient uh, approach to uh, getting rid of the regime. However, if we look at the state-building aspect, and if we look at the fact that it took two decades and a few trillion dollars (laughs) spent um, with an unsuccessful outcome, in that respect, I think it is safe to say that uh, the U.S. has failed in state-building efforts in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. In, in that regard, then, the United States perhaps has failed and 
uh, my question here is was it logistical reasons was it the distance itself was it the lack of military coordination uh, and so on what, what do you think what were the main reasons for this uh, failure well it's, it's a combination of factors it's not one factor but let's start with the distance because geography still matters it and and Sometimes this is surprising because people look at the, at the development of technology. They look at how distance becomes less relevant with modern warfare systems. But the truth is in, in such places like Afghanistan, where it's very far from the U.S. and more importantly surrounded by unfriendly states, distance becomes a challenge. And... Uh, And this becomes a challenge for the follow-up to the military victories, not so much for the initial victories where the air superiority and drones and, and the overall technological advantage that the U.S. and other superpowers or major powers have over far uh, inferior opponents. So we're talking about the, the, the aftermath of the military victory. In this case, in Afghanistan, given that the only... Um, way the Americans could go to Afghanistan was Pakistan, which is not the friendliest of states. It explains why, why long-term success became questionable. So that was one factor, the distance, which we cannot ignore. The second factor, which I think we should take into consideration and learn from the case of, uh, of U.S. Afghanistan, is that military victories do not necessarily guarantee post-military success. And, and uh, this is something that created a misperception that was created right after the two-month initial victory. Everybody, not everybody, but many believe that similarly the U.S. would be successful in state building. But this was not, uh, this was not the case. Uh, so the military superiority does not guarantee uh, state building success. And this is something we, will, we, will, we can talk more Uh, later on, but the, the short answer is that hard power is not sufficient for everything because it doesn't help filling the gap that is created once the regime is taken down. And this is not the only place we've seen this. So we can see that hard power can help bring a regime down, but it cannot necessarily help stabilize the situation and fill in the gap after the regime uh, is, is toppled. Absolutely. And this, I guess, brings up the question of governance, because you've referred specifically to this uh, inability to stabilize the uh, local environment, introduce proper governance mechanisms, perhaps, and particularly in terms of institutional designing and building, restoring relations and engaging the citizenry as well, engaging uh, more routinized processes within the government and basically day-to-day -day functions within the rest of the society. Why do you feel that they failed to achieve this? Because you've already referred to the gap, being unable to fill in the gap using hard power. But what other reasons are there for this? Well, I think you touched upon at least four or five different reasons. So, so let's split it up. Um, one has to do with institutions, like you very correctly noted. The other has to do with the local population. And, and another major factor is the effort towards stabilization. So there's no doubt that the U.S. spent a lot of money in Afghanistan. 
Um, the estimates are in the trillion. We don't know exactly how much. Some say two, some say six, but it's a lot of money spent. But that money was primarily spent on military assets, weapons, weaponry, uh, private military contractors, logistics, and so on, and not so much on the post-conflict reconstruction, post-conflict uh, stabilization efforts. And I think this, this is a good lesson, and it ties to the, to the previous uh, comments that I made. But just to give an indicative, um, comparative example, if you wish, the U.S. in Bosnia after the war, the war, not just the U.S., but also other other countries that contributed, spent approximately six sixteen hundred U.S. dollars for each inhabitant in some form of economic assistance. In Afghanistan, they spent fifty U.S. dollars hmm. per inhabitant. So, as you can imagine, if the if the effort and if the focus is on destroying militarily speaking a country not so much on the reconstruction aspect you can see why the toppling of the regime was the easy part and the post-conflict was on the on the hard part and i'm not saying of course that the u.s aimed at destroying afghanistan but it was in a way a necessary evil given what was going on another aspect in line with uh, with the effort to um uh, to stabilize the situation is what we can call the soldier to local population ratio, where where the um, the the number of people that the U.S. sent in Afghanistan to monitor and control the situation was extremely small for what was required for such a vast area, a lot of you know a lot of people in that area, diverse people, big population, so. Again, just to give a similar example, uh, in 2002, so just a few months after the regime was, was over, the Taliban regime was over, the U.S. sent approximately 8,000 troops in Afghanistan. The population at the time was 21 million people in Afghanistan. In comparison, in, comparison, in 1999, the K-4 force, the Kosovo force in Kosovo, had a population of less than 2 million people, and the forces that were sent there were 50,000. So the ratio at the time were 38 troops for every Kosovar, as opposed to one troop for 2,700 Afghans. So you can see that this soldier to local population ratio was significantly different in, in such cases. So this was a very important aspect uh, that led to uh, that led to the um, uh, inability to stabilize the situation. And if I may add to that, which, which I find very interesting, the very large, significant difference in the ratio, in terms of policing, the, um, the State Department, <coughs> according to different reports and to other testimonies that I have collected myself, uh, they actually encouraged increased policing and engagement with the locals so they would, the military would have to find those people who would be policing the streets no matter what the cost would be, without taking into account any potential rioting, looting, uh, the emergence of local gangs. And ultimately, what I'm trying to say is that the State Department would often care more about statistics and numbers. So they would just tick a box where they'd said, okay, we've increased policing in this street. Let's move on to the next one without taking into consideration the actual impact it has had on society. And that's very interesting because in that regard, you know, 
uh, quantity uh, matters more than quality? <laughs> well, both matter. Definitely quantity matters in this case, but I think quality matters as well. This is tied to the question of what kind of military forces matter, what kind of policing forces matter. And I think this is perhaps one of the additional reasons that led to the failure. And, and, and the U.S. has tried to train the Afghans, but potentially one of the problems was that it was, training, it was trying to train the Afghans with Western standards. So, but Western armies have some characteristics. They, they, they rely on high technology. They rely on uh, constant logistical support, high level of intelligence. These things are unmatched. You know, the US, for instance, and other major powers cannot be compared to what the Afghan army could do, irrespective of how much training it received. And this kind of training is not necessarily suitable for the kind of policing that you need, for the kind of uprisings and the kind of resistance that regions in Afghanistan would, would face from Taliban forces or other forces. So this, this uh, kind of training that was given by the Americans and the kind of technology that was given to the uh, Afghan people was not necessarily the most, uh, the most relevant one to help towards successful uh, stabilization. And similarly, the effort was too much on the army and less on the police. So this disallowed the resolution of problems that should have been solved by police and not the army. So much of the insecurities of the local population required police response, not army response. Therefore, we saw this inconsistency between the two, which allowed for a lot of um, social instability in the country. Hmm. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sort of sounds like you're to some extent suggesting that the U.S. might have failed to create a secure environment in Afghanistan. Oh yeah, I'm not <laughs> suggesting that. It's a, it's a, it's <laughs> it has it has, and and this was, I mean, in hindsight, it's easy to judge it, but if we can see how quickly the government forces gave up in just ten days, the Taliban came back to power. So. Uh, this is evident, so it's not, it's not, it's not so much a, a subjective situation. As much as we would not like to have seen that, the truth is, it was, it was not meant to, uh, it was not designed in a way that would sustain such pressures. In that regard, then, what do you feel? How, to what extent was the the relation between the locals and the U.S. military, the United States representatives? And other Afghans as well, like collaborating with the United States or minding their own business, such as civilians. To what extent do you think that this was an issue that led to failure? Uh, that's, that's a very good point. And I think it was an issue that led to failure. Among other things, there are reports that demonstrate that the U.S. did not treat the Afghans as equal. And this is, this is an issue right? because when, when you treat the local population as something inferior and then you expect them to take over once you leave, they will have a hard time taking over. And this is not just, so we're not just discussing whether it was ethically or morally correct to treat someone as inferior, but, but rather logistically and, and operationally, this, is, this was a mistake because you don't prepare them for the day after you withdraw. 
And, and this is tied to the morale that the people will have once the U.S. would withdraw. Because the Afghan forces, for two decades, they learned to fight with a superpower on their side, taking on the heavy load, taking on uh, using the technology, taking on any enemies that even thought about coming to the surface, and so on and so forth. So the minute they walked out, the morale of the local population was so low, and if you combine that with their ill-trained and ill ability, if you wish, expertise to handle such threats, then the two combined led to uh, to the toppling of the government within ten days, mm-hmm. and and this is this is extremely important to keep in mind, because once you take off the training wheels, then the locals just fall over. Yeah, absolutely, they fall over. You create panic, chaos. I mean, we've seen a lot of very you know disturbing images from people clinging onto the plane and trying to. Uh, fly with the plane, no matter even even though they knew that essentially they were just going to fall to their death. Well, that was I think that was a, a different kind of failure from from the U.S. Military. in terms of evacuation. In terms of evacuation, so I think this is something different from the state building activities. Mm-hmm. But optically, this did not look well. Yeah, it had an impact on the credibility of the U.S. As, as such a powerful country to allow such uh, such incidences to happen. So, yeah, optically that was a disaster mm-hmm. for the U.S. Um, just to, to add on the previous point, I think it's it's extremely important to, to mention the institutions that were in place or actually that were not in place uh, in, in Afghanistan. And, and more specifically, we know that there's a lot of kleptocracy, a lot of corruption, and that was a big problem because all the new, the foundation and all the new institutions that were supposed to take over were essentially built on very weak foundations. Even the, even the security providers, the army, did not even exist. 30% of the theoretical army that the Afghans had to fight off the Taliban did not even exist. They could not be accounted for. So if you base state building, the foundations of the state building in kleptocracy and corruption, you cannot expect that they will be able to withstand the forces of, of the attacking forces, or like the Taliban in this case. Any type of threat essentially to the foundations, which they <laughs> seem not to be solid enough. So, yeah. Um, let's take a step back for now and look at other cases. Let's look at Iraq and Libya. What is the difference here? Uh, let's take it chronologically, perhaps. Let's look at Iraq first and then Libya. I would mm. say that we have a very similar situation in the sense that militarily they were equally successful. So, toppling Saddam Hussein and then uh, Gaddafi, that was the relative easy part. And I, of course, I use relative very consciously, right? It's not a. Uh, no war is easy. Right? But militarily speaking, the superiority of the U.S. was unquestionable. But when it comes to state building, I, I believe we see very similar uh, scenario and, and very similar situations. We see the inability of, of those states to stand up on their own two feet. We see uh, civil unrest. We see civil wars. We see tribal forces taking over. Um, we see the morale of the people being extremely low, 
corruption. So all of the things that we saw in Afghanistan, we've seen in, in uh, Iraq and Libya as well too. Maybe mm-hmm. different extent for different reasons potentially. Obviously, no two cases are the same. Libya, for instance, you cannot compare it due to the uh, the opposing forces domestically. You cannot mm-hmm. compare it to Afghanistan. But some similarities do exist, and more specifically, the power gap created due to the military intervention. If if there are no correct mechanisms on how to fill that gap, you should expect some form of reactions. In Libya, it was. It, it, it was manifested in two opposing forces, major opposing forces, with external influences. So what we see in Libya as opposed to Afghanistan is the internationalization of a civil war, in, in essence. In Afghanistan, we don't see that as much. Um, it, it's more of domestic issues that to be dealt with. Um, in Iraq, we see, again, domestic issues uh, with also with external intervention, maybe not to the extent of, of, of Libya, or at least not so obvious. But again, it's the, it's the gap created and the lack of mechanisms to create stability after that gap. Mm-hmm. But yeah, also to add to that, both cases, indeed, they're, they can be very different in some regards. Like when you look at the type of external intervention, Okay, in the case of Iraq, for example, you, we still have Iran as a very strong uh, player in the region, capable of addressing and influencing uh, the Shia sect. There. Because in the case of Iraq, the difference there, what was introduced post-war, was this consociational type of uh, model of governance that would uh, allow different religious groups to uh, compete for power, and there would be allocated a certain number of seats at parliament and so on. The issue is that the way the society is spread out and who has access to resources, which creates more conflict and instability, especially when it comes to, uh, to oil. And we, in the case of uh, Iraq, again, those groups, they're scattered around the country. They don't live in one single uh, place. Like the Kurds live in different parts. The Shias live uh, not together. They are split up into different parts in the north and the south. The Sun is the same and so on. And then in the case of Libya, at some point after the uh, intervention, the government that was uh, supported by the Allies and the other forces, they were fighting a war on five fronts, including uh, jihadis, including uh, other external players and the PMCs who wanted to influence one way or another the governance there. And, and this, again, it brings me into question how uh, it brings into question the ability to actually build a model that is sustainable it is it can actually withstand these type of uh, aftermaths later on because conflict still persists for different reasons in the case of iraq it's for endemic reasons and meaning that the model of governance that was introduced essentially by the united states and other academics uh because indeed like the, the actual type of governance model was drafted by academics and it's very interesting and then in the case of Libya, um, there was no long-term solution to the stability and to sort of empower the government to be withstand such a... I mean, it's, it's still there. It's still there. It's, it doesn't mean it's very strong, but it's still standing there some, somehow. But I, I don't want to be mumbling too much about this. So before I ask my question, when, let's take another case to look at, which is very different. It's the case of Syria 
where, again, the United States had intervened militarily and the actual impact it had was not very positive. Do we see the same elements for this failure being replicated or persisting in Afghanistan to some extent or any other case that, uh, of course, as I've said, it's a completely different case. But what do you, how do you feel about Syria in that regard and U.S. intervention? I think you answered your question. That is a very different case. And generally speaking, we must be very careful when we compare cases because the variables are different, so the explanations may be different. Right? So we are looking for some commonalities. The case of Syria, I think, is, is perhaps the most different case of all, not least because you had major powers with very different interests and, uh, and, and that complicated things dramatically. So we cannot compare the U.S. intervention in Syria with the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan or NATO's intervention in Libya or, or Iraq, or U.S. intervention in Iraq and so on. Uh, the fact that Russia had such a heavy footprint in Syria cannot be neglected, something that we didn't see in Afghanistan, for instance. Uh, the fact that um, Iran had a heavy footprint. Turkey had a heavy fo footprint. So we see major regional powers plus Russia, which is beyond that, right? Having having a, um, a, a a strong opinion and presence in the region. Not to mention that you had an active leadership that was still withstanding with the support of Russia and others, withstanding the pressure from other forces, Western forces. And at some point, the U.S. and others decided that it maybe it's best if we do not persist in changing the leadership, given what we have learned from other cases where the leadership was uh, was gone. So, and and of course, the terrorist presence, the international terrorist organizations, Islamic State being the most obvious one, um, we justified some form of intervention. So it was not. It was not the same case as in as in Afghanistan. So in that case, we have to look at the U.S. role in, in Syria very, very differently because it's not the sole responsible actor, as was the case with Afghanistan. Because it, we can do the analysis that I mentioned before in Afghanistan for the U.S. because the U.S. was essentially almost exclusively, almost exclusively responsible for what was going on in Afghanistan post-2001. In the case of Syria, this is not the case. Mm -hmm. We had a, dozens of actors, some major, some minor, mm -hmm. having a role in the instability of the country. So we have to be a bit careful when we do these comparisons. Absolutely. And again, again, in the case of Syria, we've also had militaries within militaries. We've had uh, other state apparatuses within that same apparatus. And it's very interesting because uh, Professor Christopher Phillips, who has studied Syria extensively, he's published this book on the Battle of Syria, international rivalry in the Middle East. It's an extensive research covering so many different actors in Syria in, at the international level. So the Russian involvement, as you've said, and all these other actors, the terrorist organizations getting in. And of course, the civil war that uh, took place that started, you know, it's already been over 10 years now. It started in 2011. It's been uh, 10 plus now. And would you say that sometimes U.S. interventions in different countries, and let's stick with the Middle East for now, 
do you feel that a contributing factor to this failure is the lack of knowledge, understanding, the uh, researching, having actual experts on the ground, or even before, you know, when, when, it, when it's at the planning, the, before the initiating, the advisors, do you feel that the lack, there's a gap in their knowledge in, in terms of, especially when you look at the cases like Syria, where they fail to understand how the mechanisms worked in terms of governance, in terms of uh, military and the security services conflicting with uh, the military, which allowed uh, President uh, Assad to maintain his uh, foothold in uh, Damascus? Well, I, I want to believe that the US and other countries that intervene anywhere do not go without a plan. Right? So that, that would be kind of naive to say that they don't have a plan. And again, Mike Tyson said that everybody has a plan until they <laughs> take a punch in the face or something like that, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> so plans can easily change. And, and wars, unfortunately, are very dynamic. But I think one of the lessons that, that we, can, we can draw from intervening in different mm -hmm. cultures and in different areas, and, and essentially, this is where we see the interventions. We will not see interventions, or we have not seen interventions in countries with similar ideologies, similar cultures, the whole democratic peace theory argument, mm -hmm. and so on. So it, it's not surprising that all the interventions take place in, in specific regions of the world of the world. And and towards that end, it's extremely important to have an understanding, a deep understanding of the culture. In Afghanistan, I think this was one of the mistakes. I'm not so sure about Syria because the the external interventions were so so influential that they could have influenced much more the U.S. rationale and decision-making calculus as opposed to the local situation. So the Russian presence, the Turkish presence, the Iranian presence, the fear that Israeli would intervene, you know, these, all of these regional actors that could, that could create major spillovers and uncontrolled situations may have been a, a much more deciding factor as opposed to the lack of knowledge of the of just the local population without discounting the importance of that aspect as well but in afghanistan for instance this was much more obvious uh, the security was given to regional players warlords or, or tribal leaders and so on which would then be an easy prey to the taliban because precisely because the central security providers, the government, or what they were supposed to be the central security providers, were not good enough. So if the security was essentially outsourced to the local leaders, they were unable to face the Taliban. So in that aspect, yes, it was a big miscalculation on behalf of the U.S. I mean, there were reports that the government would not hold on. I mean, the, the intelligence services knew that. What they did not estimate is that they would fall in 10 days. They estimated up to 18 months. So if that had happened 18 months later, the responsibility is not so much on the U.S. anymore, but rather on the local government left behind. But if the government collapses in 10 days, then you have a bigger part on uh, the responsibility. Mm -hmm. But in Syria, I think Syria is a much more complicated case compared to Afghanistan when it comes to the locals. How do you envision... Uh, relations between the Taliban and other states out there in the, in the international community, including the United States, perhaps, 
uh, in uh, future months and future years? Do you, this is perhaps a very tricky question, but because I know that you might not have the answer necessarily, but thinking ahead, do you think they will unfold positively in the coming years in the sense that they will stabilize? Will some states be forced to recognize the Taliban because of the presence that they are growing in the region and the legitimacy they're trying to assert from other countries such as Pakistan? I, I don't know the future. I wish I did. But uh, I think some countries, yes, they will, they will closely work or they, work, they will work with the Taliban much more closely compared to others. Whether they would fully recognize them, maybe, maybe some will. Um, but that is of, of a lesser importance, the, the actual recognition, but rather the level of collaboration and the level of cooperation. And let's not forget that the US itself had a meeting with the Taliban prior to their departure and reached an agreement, which is in and of itself a very interesting observation because what does it say to the government that was supposed to be in power to oppose the emergence the, the re-emergence of the Taliban so it, it's as if it was telling the government it was signaling to the Afghan government that we know you're not going to stand in, in you know uh, we, we stand the pressure and you will fall so we might as well reach a deal with the Taliban in advance Mm-hmm. I oversimplify, but these agreements that took place between the U.S. and the Taliban were not sending the, the right signals to how much trust the U.S. had in the government that was leaving behind. Now, in all cases, we see collaboration between opposing forces, in this case the Taliban and the U.S., for instance. It, it's not unexpected to see that. It can be a covert collaboration so that they minimize the, uh, the, the credit working relation, minimize the, the friction and the conflict. So for as long as the Taliban do not allow for international terrorist organizations to threaten Western interests, especially the US, things might be to some extent normal at the expense perhaps of the local population, but in terms to, in, 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 in relation to international relations, they might be somewhat normalized. If, however, the Taliban change course and they allow for um, becoming safe havens to, interna- to international terrorist organizations or in any way threaten the U.S. interest, I think we should expect some form of pressure. I, I don't think we're going to see another intervention or anything like that anytime soon, at least, but it's too early to, to know. Mm-hmm. Other countries will work more closely, perhaps, with the Taliban, especially for the sake of stability. Right. So, very interesting questions to um, puzzle with. Uh, of course, we cannot predict the future, as you've said. Um, do you have any concluding remarks in terms of uh, <laughs> the lessons, the failures that we've seen uh, uh, in Afghanistan? Yes, uh, the, the concluding remark is, is one that was uh, insinuated throughout the discussion, that conversion of military victories is a necessary art that the West has yet to master. So the West has become very good at winning militarily, but not converting that military victory into something bigger, into a more stable environment. And this is something that if the West wants to continue to have such global role and intervene, 
then it's something that it should work on, kind of the exit strategy rather than the entry strategy, uh, in a sense. Um, but that's, that, that, I think, is the final thought, that conversion of military victors into state building and stability. Thank you very much, Dr. Adam. This has been a very interesting discussion and I think a great way of uh, kicking off with season three. I hope uh, it's been also enjoyable for our listeners and uh, we will try to reflect a bit more uh, in the coming months when we will perhaps have more updates on this. So, thank you so much. Thank you very much and best of luck with the rest of the series.